Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series, Church Discipline in Revolutionary Edinburgh with Dr. Claire McNulty. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Claire McNulty. Dr. McNulty completed a PhD at Queen's University Belfast on the subject of parish discipline in Edinburgh during the years 1638 to 1651. She has since contributed to the brilliant collection The Clergy in Early Modern Scotland and I'm thrilled to have her on today. Dr. Claire McNulty, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sam. I'm so delighted to be here. And thanks for your patience with getting all of this set up as well. I really appreciate it. You completed your thesis and you you submitted it last year. Could you talk a bit about what your project was on? Yeah, sure. So my PhD thesis, the title of it was The Experience of Discipline in Parish Communities in Edinburgh, 1638 to 1651. Um, So basically, for my thesis, I wanted to know what it was like have that experience I suppose of church discipline and not just from the point of view of the people imposing discipline but from the point of view of those upon whom discipline was imposed I suppose so that's what I had set out to do with my thesis. I arranged it around a series of case studies of parishes in and around Edinburgh so I looked at South Leith, St. Cuthbert's and the Canning Gate as well. So they were kind of my my three main case studies, I suppose. And each chapter of my thesis examined a different parish. So I was looking in terms of sources. I was looking at the Kirk Session records for those parishes for South Leith, St. Cuthbert's and the Canning Gate. So they're a great resource for kind of showing us how church discipline was implemented and how parishioners engaged in this system I suppose so yeah that was that was what I set out to do so yeah it it, it all went according to plan I, I got it all done so that's the main thing I think. <laughs> <laughs> so why specifically Edinburgh what what appealed to you about the capital so I really enjoyed Michael Lynch's Edinburgh and the Reformation and I enjoyed the kind of case study approaches taken by historians like say John McCallum as well and and Michael Graham and I just thought that that worked quite well so yeah I was just kind of drawn to to Edinburgh in that way and wanted to kind of maybe pick up where Michael Lynch had kind of left off I suppose so that was the the reason for that and I had a few good sources there that I could look at I had actually wanted to when I had started this whole project or I had started out with uh, loads like the entire region of Lothian and then I realized that was uh, quite unrealistic for a PhD (laughs) thesis (laughs) and yeah I had gotten some advice and somebody said to me you know you keep going back to Edinburgh you keep you keep talking about Edinburgh so why not focus on that and I kind of thought oh gosh yeah sometimes it's the it's the most simple things that are you know staring you in the face so that's how that's how I got to Edinburgh. Save all of Lothian for the book. Exactly. Oh my God, (laughs) that seems like (laughs) insurmountable, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So let's let's talk about the basics. How would church discipline be undertaken? What would be the process of someone being brought before the church courts? What would they be charged with? How would they be punished? What would the procedure be? That's a great question. Um, So I think one of the most important things to keep in mind with this is that it varied. And that was something that I really noticed when I took this case study approach that the ways in which church discipline was implemented varied significantly from one parish to the next. But if you read through the, say, the the first book of discipline, they had set out these kind of procedures for how people would be reprimanded for certain immoral offences. And I suppose the first stage was private admonition for these 
less serious offences that were not publicly known. So a person could be sort of reprimanded in private and wouldn't have to perform repentance before the entire congregation if they had proved that they had regretted their sin and that they were willing to be kind of welcomed back into the godly community. So that was the first step. But then for sort of more serious offences and for offenders who kind of continued in their immoral ways or were unrepentant, they were called then before the session to confess their sin. So the the session, the Kirk session, was made up of ministers, elders and deacons. The elders were mostly responsible for uh, discipline and the deacons were mostly responsible for poor relief, but there's, there's a blurring of the lines there when it comes to kind of duties and things like that. That was the whole idea. So they'd be called before the Kirk session and they, they would have to confess their sin and then they would be appointed a day when the whole Kirk would have convened. So whether that was during the weekly sermon or on the Sabbath and they would perform repentance there before the congregation. So that took lots of different forms. And as I said already, there was lots of different kind of variations to that. Sometimes parishioners, especially those who were guilty of sexual misdemeanors, would have to wear sackcloth as they were performing repentance. And some of them were made wear the sackcloth from their, you know, homes and and walk down the street to the church wearing that as a kind of sign of their sin. And then sometimes they would have to stand at the church door while the entire parish community filed in past them. Just again, just highlighting the pervasiveness of sin in the community. And then after everyone had gotten inside the kirk, the offender would be brought in and kind of stand up the top, often on a stool of repentance. And again, like the whole variation in, in discipline across the board, the, the stool took so many different forms as well. So it could be a high stool or like a long bench uh, with the words repentance written on the back of it to, again, symbolize the, the pervasiveness of, of sin and, and the need to repent. And then the fact that it was a bench, you could fit sort of multiple offenders on it as well. So and sometimes the stool of repentance would be raised before the congregation so that everybody could see them. So it very much So in terms of what punishments were given out for what offences, it really did vary. Like I had in, say, South Leith, one of the parishes that I looked at, saying that they would give a standard fine. I can't remember now whether it was like 40 shillings or something like that, but I'd have to double check that. A standard fine for Sabbath absence, so absence from the, the sermon. And then this is what's kind of been been set out in the Kirk Session records. There's this standard fine uh, for sermon absence. But then... When you look at the different cases, you're seeing various people paying various financial penalties. And a lot of it depended on kind of the seriousness of the offence. So if somebody was absent on the Sabbath and they were found working or something like that, they would be reprimanded for that. But if somebody was absent from the Sabbath and then found to have engaged in, say, fornication or adultery or something like that, then they would be given a more serious offence. So it just depended on how serious the offence was. It also depended on the moral record of the parishioner. So if this is a parishioner who's been called in, you know, a few times for a few different misdemeanors, then they be more kind of heavily reprimanded in that sense. So lots of different ways of kind of enforcing church discipline. If you look at, say, the Canongate Kirk Session records, there was an issue with whoredom or, or prostitution as the Canongate was kind of known as a, as a red light district. And as part of the 
punishment for people who were you know suspected of being whores this is the language in the in the Kirk Session records that word would be written on a kind of a paper hat and the offender would have to wear that before before the entire congregation so yeah lots of lots of different ways of sort of imposing punishment and lots of different ways of kind of finding out about sins as well which I thought was quite interesting like again to go back to South Leith the elders were sent out onto the streets and they were sent down to the port to kind of listen out to people's conversations and then report back any misdemeanors I suppose to to the rest of the session so that was one way of kind of finding out what had happened whether people were fornicating or whether they were swearing or blaspheming or whatever it was like that was that was one of the tools in the sessions kit I suppose to try and prove the the moral behavior of of parishioners as they saw so lots of interesting case studies I've come across anyway it's been it's been great and it's just one of those things that you're you're always coming across case studies that are just so fascinating so interesting they you know tell you so much you know even more about not just church discipline but like gender and sexuality and religious beliefs in, in general it's been great it's it's never ending you know it's one of those things where I don't think I'll ever be done with this I'll always find something else to talk about it sounds absolutely fascinating these these windows into entire lives I'm not surprised that you found it was a bit (laughs) overwhelming to be like oh I want to look at all of Lothian oh maybe not because this is hundreds of thousands maybe but what struck me about the way you describe these punishments is how rooted they seem to be in reputation and using this public humiliation and 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 the threat of having this reputation hanging around your neck literally uh, in some cases were most of the punishments isolated to reputational punishments or were there more like things like fines levied out or lashings maybe or something like that so I think fining was quite quite important when it came to divvying out these punishments. And she had one interesting case study of a Dutch man who docked his boat in the port of Leith on the Sabbath day, and he was fined as well. So, you know, you're not even talking about kind of parishioners from within the community, anyone who's kind of stepped into the parish on the Sabbath day and, and doing something they're not supposed to be doing was, was then fined. So, yeah, I think the fining aspect is really interesting. And the other thing is, I actually, this just made me think of another case study of, this is a case study actually I've done quite a bit of work on and I'm hoping one day might appear as an article but who knows it was a case from the Trinity College Kirk session and it was one of these cases that was very detailed so a lot of the time when you're looking into these records you know you might get one or two lines and you know you'd love to know more but there's not there's not a whole lot to kind of go from and like most of the cases are like that as well you know there's not huge amounts written into the session records but this one particular case as soon as I saw it in the Trinity College session records I knew that there was there was something about this that really troubled the Kirk session and basically what what had happened was there was an affair between a woman and a married man and she presented herself before the Kirk session and said that she thought that she was pregnant with child and that uh, she'd been having this affair with this married man and uh, this story kind of unfolded from there but it was one of those cases that was very detailed but 
when the married man was brought before the Trinity College session, he denied, you know, these, these accusations that were brought before him and said, you know, oh, I've never had any meddling with this woman, even though, you know, his own servant was actually testifying against him. But the, the session were really worried about this and they, you know, were trying to get him to kind of confess and he was refusing to confess. And each time they'd kind of finish on that session day, they would have to continue the case then the following week. It was one of these things that just went on for a few months. But at the end of each session day, the elders and ministers and deacons and whoever else were on it said that if you don't appear again the next week or the following session day, I'm going to subject you to a £1,000 fine. Now that's unimaginable, especially during this period. Like it's the chances are that this was used in a hyperbolic sense as if to say, you know, I'm going to charge you the most amount of money for this particular transgression or maybe not for the transgression, but if you don't kind of comply with church proceedings. So I just thought that that was fascinating. You know, it was one of those entries that I read, you know, a few times to make sure that it was it was definitely £1,000 but fascinating to see to see that so I'd say in that instance the fine was used in a in a hyperbolic kind of sense. What other means were used to try and ensure that people actually did attend these sessions? I mean what would stop someone say you mentioned the Dutch merchant how else would a Kirk session try and make sure that their parishioners actually did follow their orders? That's a really great question, Sam. Thanks for that. There was a, it's almost like an adjunct position to the to the Kirk session. There was an individual or there was a, a position called the cautioner and they worked alongside the Kirk session, but they were very much so in a kind of a, a civil role. And their whole duty or responsibility was to ensure that the offender repented okay and if the offender didn't repent in the way that they were supposed to whether it's you know stand in a sackcloth for a successive number of Sundays whether it's you know pay this fine or whatever the form of repentance was so if the offender did not perform the prescribed repentance then the cautioner was fined you have these kind of individuals who have a vested financial interest in ensuring that this particular offender uh, repents for whatever sin the session reckoned that they might have committed. So there's more research being done into the likes of ministers and elders and deacons as these kind of main individuals, I suppose, on the session. There were other people who also contributed to the implementation of discipline and the cautioner was one of these one of these people. So they played an important role. And, and in, you know, another role as well that's worth mentioning was also the Bailey. So again, the Bailey was a civil magistrate and the offender could be sent to the Bailey, you know, and they could be kind of kept in ward until they made arrangements, whether it was to make this financial penalty or to make their, you know, repentance or whatever it was. So there's lots of individuals beyond the minister, elders and deacons who are responsible for church discipline. And then that doesn't even kind of take into consideration the ordinary parishioners who felt that they could turn to the Kirk session in their moments of of need. I'm talking about people here who were trying to settle a neighborly or familial dispute and, you know, felt that they could turn to the Kirk session to try and kind of 
arbitrate those grievances. So that's, you know, really significant. And I, I had another case study of a woman who presented before the Kirk session and complained that her son had chosen to marry a woman whom she didn't approve of. It was kind of expected that early modern men and women would, and the youths as well, would would gain kind of approval from their parents before marriage. So it's it's just, it's interesting to see how people used the session and, you know, how people kind of engaged in church discipline and in these disciplinary procedures for their own personal reasons, whether they're spiritual, social, economic, or or whatever it is. It, it, it tells us more than than just about the, the, the ministers, elders, and deacons. I think the, yeah, the idea of this almost unofficial peer pressure working yeah. with the official measures i think that's that's a really interesting angle and i think that the cautioner i'm mm-hmm. i agree yeah he sounds fascinating like he's, he's almost like a guarantor yes that, exactly which, which is exactly. curious because what's what's he because I'm, I'm presuming it's always a man what's he getting out of it is it a voluntary position is it a social status thing because mm. it seems like he's being put on the hook for a lot of people unless he's known to the accused and it's kind of like a okay you've messed up so your uncle will be your cautioner if you don't follow through your uncle is on the line so I think it's both okay and I think I think you're you're absolutely right with that I think it's a it's a combination of kind of what you've just said there when we think about why elders even took up this position you know unpaid obviously an awful lot of 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 hassle but um something that you know I imagine was done for the status and and the social prestige and I wonder does does that apply to the cautioner as well is there an element of that to kind of have that status I suppose in society you know you've raised another important point there about the the cautioner and oftentimes a relative could act as a cautioner to make sure that an individual was was brought to repentance You mentioned there, you know, in terms of that's a really good question about sort of gender. And I can't think of a case when I'm actually going to go and find out because now I'm really interested in that. I can't think of a case where a woman acted as a cautioner. Cautioners who were family members were like you said, kind of uncles or or fathers or or male relatives in 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 some in some way. So they had kind of you know a vested a vested interest in bringing that person to repentance because heads of households were responsible for the behavior of all of those people in in their residence. So yeah, there is that kind of vested interest. That is really interesting, and yeah. I'd... It would be curious to know whether a widowed mother or something was yes. made a cautioner for her for her her wayward son. That would be really interesting. I'm curious. Do you see much in the way of gendered bias or anything in that respect? Were there more harsh punishments for women parishioners for the same crime than there are for men, for example? That that is that is problematic. Okay, you have um, a session entirely made up of male officials and and male ministers and then you would kind of have to wonder like how were female parishioners treated under this circumstance and I think the I think the gender question when it comes to this is really important and really interesting so 
I know that I think it might have been Michael Graham talked about the relative even handedness of the Kirk session when it came to dealing with male and female offenders. I was wondering then kind of going off that what was it what was the kind of the flip side of that like so what was it like what was the experience like for women and did they take up kind of different different offenses kind of present with different issues say before the before the Kirk session so one thing I actually came across was in uh, St Cuthbert's that a lot of female parishioners were presenting before the Kirk session and bringing accusations of slander against other female and male parishioners okay so that was very interesting for me because I had I could see where Michael Graham was coming from in terms of the it being sort of about reputation it being about the former moral record of the individual in question but I think where from what I found anyway for women it was that you know, in this particular parish in St. Cuthbert's, they were taking up these cases of slander and bringing them before the session more so than men. So I just wondered, is is the experience different when we're not looking at, you know, whoever's imposing the discipline, but to be kind of on the receiving end and, and how were women able to engage with, with that system? So the gender question is definitely a tricky one. I feel like for men, it was easier to deny fornication or adultery but for a single pregnant woman it was much harder to deny that 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 something had happened like for very obvious visible physical reasons and I have seen it I've seen it in the Kirk Session records where some men just denied that they had any sort of involvement with the woman and and I've also seen the Kirk Session push back on that as well this case that I was talking about earlier on the Trinity College one was a case between Margaret Duckett and John Stewart John Stewart was already married okay so this is the problem and Margaret Duckett said that she was with child okay but the pregnancy was kind of unconfirmed which wouldn't be unusual in early modern times so she presented before the the session and said that this sin had occurred and when they called and actually you know while she was there and while she testified she also told the session he's going to deny it John Stewart will deny that this happened okay John Stewart is called into the Trinity College Kirk session the next day and the you know the accusations are brought against him and he constantly denied that he ever had any meddling with Margaret Duckett okay so this this seems to be from what I've seen, the most effective way to resist church discipline, certainly for men, okay, because it just seems to be the most effective way to to sort of resist uh, church discipline. And John Stewart continues to deny the, the charges that were brought against him. But the session don't believe him. I think that's, you know, worth kind of keeping in mind as well. So they call in his uh, servant, the servant in, in John Stewart's household, and she actually testifies against him. And she confirms that, yes, he has been having an affair with Margaret Duckett, and that if she is pregnant, she is with child to John Stewart and and so it goes on now unfortunately which is often the way with the Kirk session records and it's the biggest nuisance um, is that the session just you know it just ends the records just end in the oh. middle of the case <laughs> so it's very annoying a cliffhanger a cliffhanger I know I know an early modern cliffhanger it's you know very frustrating but 
I have seen cases like that where men have been, you know, resistant to church discipline. And I've also seen then the other side of that, which is the session kind of pushing back and saying, well, there are witnesses, your your servant is testifying against you. This woman claims she's with child to you. You know, we, we have kind of this, this evidence against you. And, you know, I had another case where a man just completely, you know, refused to sort of repent for, for what he had done. And he was made to repent then for the scandal that he had caused. So not necessarily for the offence itself, but for all of the kind of the, the scandal that ensued around it, you know. So the Kirk session were nothing if not persistent. Did church discipline change during the wars? I wrote a chapter on this and hopefully it'll be out sometime in the not too distant future. And basically for one of my parishes that I was looking at, which was Southley, I noticed a real change in discipline after 1638 okay so after kind of 1638 after the national covenant is signed and kind of between 1638 and 1639 a lot of the former kind of Episcopalian ministers who were unwilling to sign the covenant were ousted from their ministerial charges and they were replaced by Presbyterian ministers okay and I could see this real change in the parish of South Leith when James Sharp was appointed minister in 1639. What I noticed was this real kind of step change in church discipline when James Sharp is appointed minister and he's lamenting for the ungodly ways of this parish and how there's you know great abuse in this town and I suppose with South Leith as well being kind of a, a, a trading centre the issue for Sharp was that a lot of people were absenting from the sermon to attend to their work commitments to their to their busiest was trading lives so That was really interesting to see that change. It's a fascinating case study um, of how one minister's influence can shape the agenda of the the Kirk session. And, And when Sharp is appointed, we see a greater emphasis on sermon attendance or attendance on on the Sabbath day. And we see a greater kind of effort to regulate marriage as well. So kind of as a way of, I suppose, preventing fornication between young couples, like trying to get them betrothed maybe uh, quicker than than normal so I have seen a change certainly during this period and from what I've seen a lot of it goes down to that change in minister and yeah I think the minister maybe has a bigger role in the in the disciplinary agenda of that parish maybe than we might think or maybe certainly than than I thought when I uh, started out definitely seeing a greater kind of emphasis on on improving the moral standards and more kind of parliamentary uh, legislation to kind of regulate against uh, you know working on the Sabbath and increased fines for fornication and adultery and all things like that so yeah very interesting. Dr Claire McNulty was there a Scottish revolution? <laughs> well, that's a big question, Sam. And I think you I know where you're going with this. And people have lots of different opinions on this one. But I would tend to agree with David Stevenson in his kind of cautious labelling of the Scottish uh, revolution. So I think that, yes, there was a you know fundamental change to the character of government in Scotland, kind of in and after 1638. And there was certain 
certainly a constitutional revolution. And I know some historians have noted the revolutionary potential of, of, of kind of the, the military at the time as well. So I suppose what, you know, I was trying to do for my own research was question whether there was a moral revolution and that's yeah a tough a tough question to to answer and I suppose within that I was wondering what was the role of church discipline in this moral revolution and I suppose for me I wanted to try and kind of step away from maybe elite thinkers and have a look at what was going on at parish level so what was going on in these you know Edinburgh parishes in the 1630s 1640s yeah to try and kind of understand you know was there a revolution was there a moral revolution and was there uh, what was the role of, of church discipline uh, within that and I suppose from my thesis I found that there was definite efforts to attempt a moral revolution. So if you look at the the ministerial change that happened in 1638 and 1639, the move from sort of Episcopalian to Presbyterian ministers, and if you look at kind of letters between ministers and uh, those kind of sources, it did seem like they were attempting a moral revolution. And then when I looked at the Kirk Session records, and certainly for South Leith, St. Cuthbert's and the Canongate, I could see that there was an effort to improve the moral standards of the parish, whether that was through kind of a stricter observance of the Sabbath, harsher punishments for fornicators and adulterers and things like that. So what I found is that they were definitely attempting a moral revolution, but I just felt that they ultimately were unable to achieve that goal. And I think for me, the most telling thing was the kind of continued sort of misbehavior in the eyes of the church, at least, of people, despite this effort to increase godly standards, I suppose, that people were kind of continuing to behave as before. So I felt that the Covenanters were hoping to achieve a moral revolution, but that ultimately they failed to do so. What a fantastic answer. Thank you so much. Is there anything you're working on at the moment that listeners might be uh, interested in reading or, or anything like that? Well, I suppose the chapter in the clergy in early modern Scotland, so that um, uh, my, my chapter in that looked at James Sharp in South Leith um, and his ministry and uh, the changes he implemented to, to church disciplines. Definitely worth uh, having a look. And as I say, everyone else's uh, chapters in that as well. So it should be it should be interesting. Dr. Claire McNulty, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been super, super fascinating. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been so great to just chat. It's been really great. Thank you so much for having me. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? 
What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.